Do, 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 do. Intro music. We don't have intro music, do we? We should have intro music. I should probably invest in intro music. That would be smart. Smart. Intro music for the podcast that we're doing. Hey, we're doing a podcast. We're doing a fucking podcast. And if we sound better today, that's because uh, a good old friend of mine gave me a computer out of the goodness of his heart. Thank you. So now we have a new setup, a new virtual mixer. And hopefully our audio quality doesn't sound like it was recorded in the bottom of a toilet. Friend of the podcast. Though, you know, it was fitting that the Death on an Isle podcast sounded like <laughs> it came from a toilet. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, did you see what I saw today? No, I did not. I posted it from the, from the, uh, the pod account. Um, the trailer... For a haunting in Venice drop today. No, I don't want to do it again. Do you want to know the worst part about this trailer? <sighs> yeah. Do you remember my big fucking rant about the character arc of Hercule Poirot? Is it that he's not gay? <laughs> God damn it. Um, the other rant <laughs> I had too many rants no his whole his whole thing where at the end of the movie he goes and he's hanging out at like the club Selena oh my god is his at, mustache back immediately fully back <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad why is it back well considering that we're complaining about toxic masculinity I should probably this is probably a good segue into our movie of the day oh we're getting right into it <laughs> I mean you did text me earlier today saying can we record tonight I'm buzzing <laughs> Although I will say that this is a dangerous episode for us because the longest feud in our relationship is in fact over the identity of a narrator. Oh, that, we're saving that for the special episode. We are not doing that here. I do not have the emotional energy to talk about <laughs> to talk about the hazards of love right now. <laughs> We'll save that for another time, but what are we talking about this week? We are talking about Fight Club. Fight Club. Who are we, by the way? We just get, dove right in. Oh, we sure did. <laughs> uh, I'm Cody. I'm Billy Beck, and we are uh, the soon-to-be-a-major-motion podcast in our glorious fourth episode talking about Fight Club. We have, we've gotten to four episodes, and we decided, thanks to some very salient advice from a friend... To go with Fight Club. Friend of the pod, Jeff May. Follow him on Patreon at patreon.com slash Jeff May. (laughs) Is it really Jeff May? Is it it really a bump if we're (laughs) we're giving it? (laughs) Um, But everyone knows the first rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is that everyone has to talk about it immediately. And if it is your favorite movie, it is a gigantic red flag. Oh, it is. Um, but we're a bunch of rule breakers over here. You want to break some rules? Let's break some Let's rules. Let's break some rules. Let's talk about... Wait, you were going to say something? Uh, I was going to say, speaking of rules, do you know that is actually the... That existed before the story and even the book? The what? The rules. Of Fight he, Club? He came up with the rules as a way to... He, Fight Club started as a writing exercise. Okay, well, let's actually, like, put in a marker here. Okay. So I can edit in a trailer. Okay. (laughs) Let's break the rules. Yes. Let's talk about Fight Club. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait. 
Let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Welcome! I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! It hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up she ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No. God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. He had a plan. <laughs> to what purpose? In Tyler, we trusted. We gotta take Fight Club up a notch. Each one of you has a homework assignment. You're gonna start a fight with a total stranger. It's not necessary. You're gonna lose. That hurt. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I'm stopping this. It's already done, so shut up. What kind of sick game are you playing? Oh my god. Anyone. Who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. Alright, let's let's talk about it. Let's break All that right. first rule. So, the rules. The whole idea, the genesis of this story was that Chuck Palanchik wanted um, a method of transition in a story that would be interesting. And allow that was not just like cut, 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 cut. There would be a transition that the reader would follow, but you would still have that kind of jarring, bouncing back and forth. So he came up with the idea of the rules. And he wrote the rules. And originally, it was a seven-page short story. And then he expanded it. And that, that original seven-page short story became chapter six. And then he expanded and wrote the full novel. And also, what is it with debut novels that are freaking incredible? This right? is the second debut novel that we've had. What was the other one? Um, um, what did we do second? Martian. Martian. The Martian. Yes. Okay. Uh, first things first, I just Googled. Uh-huh. We've been pronouncing it Palanchik as long as we've known each other. It's Polanik. Respectfully, I'm choosing not to process that information. <laughs> I'm going, we're going to mispronounce it. Charles, <laughs> if you're listening, we apologize. We mean you owe no ill will. Kenneth, if you're listening, I still meant everything I said. Um, <laughs> this is a Kenneth Branagh hate account. So, Chuck Palahniuk's first novel. Um, you said chapter six. Which chapter is chapter six? Chapter just so, six. Just so I can, I can gauge where we're at. I assume it's the the first rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club. The third rule of Fight Club is no shirt, no shoes? Uh, no, two men to a fight. 
So I used to know this because I was. So I have a um, library copy of this book because uh, I used to have a copy of it. it. Happens to be the same edition I had growing up. Correct. I say growing up. I bought it when I was like nineteen. Yes. Uh, so the third rule of Fight Club is if someone says stop or goes limp or taps out, the fight is over. Okay. Fourth rule is two guys to a fight. Mm-hmm. Fifth rule is one fight at a time. Sixth rule is no shirt, no shoes. Seven is the fights will go as long as they have to. And eighth is if it's your first night, you have to fight. Someone in this library book wrote the rules at the end of that chapter. Also, we realized that this book was secondhand purchased from a local used bookstore because we recognized, I recognized the handwriting of the price in the upper right-hand corner of the first page. Shout out to the Iliad in North Hollywood. Incredible bookstore. Excellent but, bookstore. Like, world-famous bookstore? Yes. I'm tangenting I think that's safe already. to say. It's shown in a lot of TVs. Yeah. Uh, TV shows. It's a um, great bookstore. Chapter six is the chapter that begins two screens into my demo to Microsoft. I taste blood and have to start swallowing. Okay. So it's the first time that we see him at Fight Club after, or the first time we see him at work after the, uh, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. That is the, oh, that is the ending line of the previous chapter. There's more in between that. Because chapter six then is where, um... He said he mentions like you can swallow a pint of, pint of blood before you get sick, right? Um, I believe so. But he mentioned he part of this is that he goes back and forth, um, a lot in time. Like it opens chapter one opens with him standing with Tyler at the top of the building. That's how the movie opens as well. Okay. I yeah. Couldn't... Um. So so I I think we should say. First of all, spoilers, ahoy. <laughs> Second of all, you've probably seen Fight Club, if you're listening to this. Yes. And if you found this because Fight Club is your favorite movie, you're going to hear some harsh truths today. <laughs> <laughs> if you found this because you are a 16-year-old boy who wants to fight everything, oh boy. <laughs> Coming from somebody who absolutely loves this movie, I think it's brilliant, um, and I read the book in college, um, and still think it's good, I need to revisit the book, but... That's besides the point. Um, yes, the movie also opens in the tower, ready to go. Tyler's like three minutes left, and he's yep. like, "Oh, how did we get here?" Um, so we actually jumped over our our normal segment where we explain where we what did. our connection to the thing is, which you referenced. You read it in college. You yeah. watched the movie. It's one of those books. I I literally bought this in an airport and read it on an airplane. I believe it was on the way to France. And I think I read it again on the way back, because I know I've read it multiple times, but it's... I believe we would have been... I would have been watching it for the first time around the same time that you read it. This is one that I actually have seen the movie for. Um, Mm. But my fun fun story about this uh, is that I was dating a really uh, shitty guy. And um, he liked to try to culture me in that way that 15 and 16 year old boys like to culture their girlfriends. Um, and and I'm using heavy scare quotes around culture here. Um, but we watched this movie and he got so angry with me because I guessed the twist about the narrator, about Edward Norton and Brad Pitt being the same character when he throws himself against the wall in his boss's office, he literally turned the movie off and would not end and wouldn't let us finish it for like a week. There's a line of dialogue in that scene where he says, for some reason I was reminded of my first fight with Tyler. That's probably what clued you in. 
I actually wrote down a few lines uh, from the first act of the movie um, that were like blatant foreshadowing. It's like the third line of the movie is he's like, oh, there's bombs in 11 buildings. I know this because Tyler knows this. Yes. What that a is, giveaway. That is a motif that goes throughout the, the book as well. That's like a really early line in the book is I know this because Tyler knows this. Another line I wrote down, if you wake up in a different place, could you wake up a different person? Yes, that is also something else that is repeated multiple times. Um, when he first finds out that Tyler and Marla are fucking. I already knew the story before he told it to me. Yeah, there's a lot of the... There's a lot of the unreliable narrator thing. Mm-hmm. And also... I In my head, I took to calling him Joe. I call him Jack. Okay, because in the in the book, the thing that he, the I am Joe's smirking revenge, whatever, whatever, he says that really early, and it's always Joe. He sticks with Joe throughout the entire book, and I feel that's why it like stuck with me. I don't think that's his actual name. I don't think no. his real name matters. I call him Jack because for some stupid reason they change it to I am Jack's smirking revenge throughout the movie. Huh? Yeah. Maybe because it's got a harsher sound to it. Probably it. Also cleans up better. I think Five Iron Frenzy has a song called I Am Jack Smirking Revenge. There used to be a Facebook group called I Am Jack Smirking Revenge. Yeah. And it was typical trolley nonsense. Interesting that the, the movie hit the zeitgeist way harder than the book. Um, but that's fair. I mean, I, David yeah. Fincher made an incredible movie in a year of incredible movies. This is part of that 1999 that was like this, <sighs> The Matrix, Magnolia, like all kinds of just... Excellent movies. I don't know why those are the three I went to. Um, I <laughs> they, feel they, like... They, is it because those are the three that are just misunderstood by frat guys? Probably. <laughs> um, although, I do think Fight Club and The Matrix are really interesting juxtaposed against each other because no one knew that the author was gay. He actually... Oh, Chuck Palahniuk's gay? Yes. I had no idea. Yes. <laughs> he, is, he is gay. He did an interview with someone and he was concerned that they were going to out him, so he publicly came out. But that was, I believe, well after this book. Yeah. Um, it's there, though. Yeah. The, the I whole, mean, it's so homoerotic. It's very homoerotic. It's very um, critical of toxic masculinity. Like, yeah. the only time uh, Jack, Joe, um, Cornelius, Travis, Rupert, Lenny, whatever you want to call him, um, the only time he experiences emotions is either when death is on the line, like a true Sicilian. That one was just for you. Um, or when he's getting the shit kicked out of him, and then they hug it out afterwards. So, I feel like... Also, there's something there about hugging a man with tits. Like, that oh, feels yeah, like yeah, something yeah. somebody's struggling with their yes, 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 sexuality. Yes. So, Big Bob. Yes. Big Bob is... Portrayed by Meatloaf, if I'm not mistaken. No. I didn't, I didn't know who Meatloaf was. I hadn't seen Rocky Horror at that point. So if that was freaking Meatloaf, I'm going to lose my mind. Sure was. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so Big Bob. I The first time I read this book when I was... Because I didn't read the book until after I had seen the movie. And that boyfriend and I had broken up. Um, mm -hmm. The book um, introduces you to Bob immediately. Um, and Bob is like the narrator's only tether to the real world and also, like, the only thing that he loves, but he doesn't seem to recognize why he has such an attachment to Big Bob. Mm -hmm. And I also, from reading this book, I haven't read it in over 10 years, but from rereading this book recently, um, I 
didn't notice all of the ways that women are present and also dismissed at the same time. Like, the author wrote this as a, he thought it was a romance. His intention was to write The Great Gatsby, but... I mean, he wrote The Great Gatsby for a new generation in a way. Exactly. That's He was like, <laughs> it was supposed to be The Great Gatsby because you got one dude, you got two dudes and one girl and one of the dudes dies. He's like, I was updating it to keep, to keep pace. Um, but, okay, sorry, going back to, to Bob. Um, the whole thing is supposed to be about Marla, which is obvious because that's the first time that you kind of get introduced to Tyler. Mm, portrayed by Helena Bonham Carter in yes. the movie. Yes, which is very interesting to me. I like it. I do too. I get it. Like she's <clears throat> okay. The the straight side of me is about to come out. <laughs> she's dirty and gross, but in a really sexy way. That's yes. That is her typecast. <laughs> yes, and it's perfect for that character, and I I she's, love it. Yeah, she's supposed to be a skeleton because she. I don't know if it's ever made clear in the movie, but she, she, it's implied that she has cancer, and that's I why she starts showing up to the support groups. I'm not sure if that's really clear in the movie. Because she, she shows up to the support groups. Um, but I'm trying to remember the first group he sees her in. I don't think it's testicular cancer, but she does show up there pretty quick. It's the other cancer one. Yes, it's the um, one with, with Chloe. Um, Chloe, yeah. But uh, brain, brain parasites? No, that's one they argue over. Oh, okay. I don't know if the movie specifies which cancer that support group is, but it... The movie doesn't make it seem like she has it. Her excuse is it's cheaper than a movie and there's free coffee. Her in the book, she starts going because uh, she discovers a lump and she goes to a clinic and the clinic is so depressing that she's like, you know what? If I'm going to die, I don't want to know about it. And then well into dating Tyler slash the narrator, and I use dating loosely, hmm. she discovers a second lump. And that's when she calls Edward Norton over to her apartment and yeah. uh, has him check for the lump. Okay, the first lump isn't in the movie, just the checking of the second lump um, that does happen. So that makes that a little more clear. Also changes kind of the um, how her character's portrayed. Yeah, she's... She is clearly at bottom, but not in the same way that Tyler and um, uh, the narrator are. You're searching for a name that doesn't exist. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of a way to refer to it. I'm probably just going to call him Edward Norton. Um, or Jack or Joe. But I'll probably that's, call him Jack. That's another thing in the divide of women versus men is that the author, when he's talking about when he was writing this, he was he had been in a fight. He doesn't specify anything, but he says he had a black eye. Um and no one at work asked him about it, so he's like, you can do whatever you want in your personal time, as long as it's scary enough that nobody wants to ask about it. Um, and the other um, the other thing is there were a bunch of books coming out about women socializing and bonding and, like, spending time together. He references the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and he references the third one that's about quilts. I don't remember. Is the word sisterhood in the title? It is not. Oh. It's like the quilt-making society or something. Rule of threes, early <laughs> 90s, come on. <laughs> but he points out that, like, there are all these books about women bonding and socializing and drawing support from one another, and there was nothing like that for guys. And yeah. that's kind of where Fight Club <clears throat> came from, is, like, he wanted it to be about what would happen, kind of like, what would happen if if men 
had something that they could bond over, but in a very satirical way. Ah, uh, you use the word satirical there. Ah, uh, yes. And that's kind of the problem with the movie. It's why it's not a perfect movie for me, is that the satire is so quickly lost, partially because of how cool Brad Pitt is. If you could be, <laughs> if you could be anyone, would you not choose? Young, hot Brad Pitt. There's a scene where they're selling soap to a department store, and he's got, like, his thumb in his belt loop, and he's just exposing his cum gutters. Just <laughs> to the world. God, young Brad Pitt was so he's hot. so hot. He's got, the, he's got the, the shirt off, the ripped abs. He's got his pants, like, halfway down. He's smoking that cigarette, and he's got blood dripping down his face. What's not to love? When okay, do you know the movie where he plays the uh, Romani character? That's Snatch. That was like the same year. Yeah, or the year I was before. just thinking like he must have done a lot of fight training for both of these movies. I think he just got ripped and was like, "Any movies need me ripped right now? Let's go, <laughs> let's go. I'm here. Let's do it. <laughs> I want to eat the whole time I'm on screen." So I don't, I don't recall him eating on screen. But when uh, Jack calls him the first time after his apartment is blown up, you hear him chewing on the phone. <laughs> I made a note of it. I was like, yes. He had, to, he had to get it in there. He's like, I gotta eat chips in one seat. <laughs> so, uh, back to the discussion of men versus women. Mm, yes. Um, there's clearly a desire for connection um, coming from the, the masculine side of it. And it's like, very clearly, Norton has no one. He is working a job that he thinks is monstrous. And essentially, he's caused a psychotic break in himself. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're working a job that that's... It, I think you can read between the lines and see that his job has essentially traumatized him. Because he talks about everywhere he goes, there's a wadded up wreck of a car waiting for him. Mm-hmm. And he knows where all the bodies are buried, literally and figuratively. Um... So he's clearly searching for connection, and that's where he he starts going to these support groups because he talks later after the um, Marla reveals the second lump. Um, he talks about how he, when people think you're dying, they pay attention to you, and they really look at you. Um, and they don't look at their phone. They don't look away. He's like, that's what's that's why he loves the support groups. Yeah, when when they think you're dying, they listen. Yes. And Bob comes into that. Bob is fascinating, especially I feel like for us particularly because we're wrestling fans or professional wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. And we have made so many jokes over the years about how wrestling, professional wrestling is so homoerotic <laughs> and it's the everyone's on steroids constantly sweaty muscular men all oiled up rolling around in their underwear and we're watching (laughs) what's homoerotic about that exactly (laughs) and it's like you're expected to see like this pinnacle of masculinity and like bob's whole life is is the pursuit of masculinity toxic and it's toxic as it is and it's like he has the toxic masculinity from the bodybuilding part of it. And then he also has, at the end, his death is in pursuit of this new masculinity that Tyler has invented. Um, that is, it's cool to be disaffected and not care about anything and you have to destroy everything. Um, but in the middle, you're introduced to Bob and it's the literal quote is, Bob has bitch tits. Mm-hmm. 
And I found that fascinating because he doesn't use the word bitch a lot. I think he maybe uses it twice in the book. I, I don't think he uses it to refer to any women that I can recall in the movie. It's literally just Bob's tits. Yeah. And I feel like Bob, he is allowed to care about Bob and be vulnerable around Bob. Because Bob is offering him the feminine comfort and desire and society that he wants. Like, the first time he cries is when he just buries his face in that warm, nurturing bosom. Yes. And he's finally able to get released. He's finally able to sleep. Yes. And it's because Bob is a safe place to offer masculinity or to to release that masculinity and to, to feel give up. emotion and, exactly. and all that, which is like the thing. And it's it's like the like almost the thesis of the movie that so many people have completely glossed over, and that is that Tyler Durden is a literal manifestation of toxic masculinity and how far that can go. Whereas when he's at his healthiest, when the narrator's at his healthiest, it's when he's got a regular uh, release of his emotion, he's in touch with himself, how he's feeling, then he's able to sleep, and Tyler has no power when he's actually sleeping. It's only when Marla comes in, and he can't sleep anymore, that it becomes a problem. Yeah. And... Like I was... The joke I made about, if you could be anyone, why not be Brad Pitt? But also... If you don't know, is is Tyler not exactly what every 15... I'm not a... I was not a 15-year-old boy, but... Lucky you. <laughs> is he not exactly what a 15-year-old boy would dream up as being the king of cool guys? Oh, absolutely. Even now, as a 30-something-year-old man, watching that movie again, every time he's on screen, he just oozes cool. Even even though it's like 1999 fashion, he's got the cool shades, he's got the cool leather jacket, he's got the cool printed t-shirts, he's got the abs and the cum gutters, he's what you want to grow up to be. Exactly. He doesn't have a real job, his jobs are splicing pornography into children's movies and peeing in soup at a hotel. He smokes cigarettes, he fucks super sexy Helena Bonham Carter, he's the fucking coolest guy. But he's also destructive and an asshole and threatens things. And I'm not saying he's wrong about everything. He just wanted to blow up some credit card companies without hurting people and eliminate debt. Is that what it is in the movie? That's it's what it is in the movie. I'm kind of I'm kind of okay with it in the movie because it's like, oh, that's all you're doing? You're just blowing up Bank of America? In Amex is going down? Bring it. Let's go. No one got hurt? In the book, his goal is he wants to destroy history. That's a little bit different. He wants to... His target... What The reason they go to the building they go to is because he wants to um, crush the National History Museum. Nat, Natural History Museum? National History Museum. I think it's a National History Museum. He wants to crush it and destroy it because over and over again... He there's a really interesting rant late in the book after um, he realizes after the narrator realizes that he is Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, he what does he say? Um, now history expected me to clean up after everyone, and I have to foot the bill for nuclear waste and bury gasoline tanks and landfill toxic sludge dumped a generation before I was born. And I get it. I get that anger because, I mean, 
I have so much just irritation at the fact that we didn't create the problems uh, that we are now facing with this, this book feels super relevant, especially right now with what's going on in America with the, um, you know what? I'm not even going to sugarcoat it with the fascist takeover that's currently happening. Yeah, I was literally just thinking like that changes so much of the story. Like who, who he is, he's a white supremacist. You want to erase national history. You want to erase the history of slavery in this country. You want to, you want it so that we can't teach that in schools because it's going to make white children feel bad. You want to you want to erase the history of the Holocaust? Something else that's painfully 90s in this is one of the lines is no one is really black or white or rich anymore and I'm like, "Oh, buddy. Oh, oh buddy. Ooh. You, oh, that's so different. You really because he's describing the the recruits that start showing up at the house mm-hmm. for Project Mayhem that are graduating out of Fight Club. And he said that and I was just like man the reason that you're getting away with all the stuff you're getting away with is because you Edward Norton character are white and most of the people that you talk to are white and there are references to the fact that there are black recruits but if I recall correctly from not seeing this movie for 15 years everyone's lily white and part of that is casting but part of that is I think it's intentional casting, because I'm thinking back, and I can't remember a black character that had a major role. As far as I can recall, everyone in um, Project Mayhem is white, and it's fitting that they all shave their heads. I guess I could have picked up on that, that they're all skinheads by the by the <laughs> time they start moving. So, um, there's a couple cops that are black. I think it's supposed to be a an analogy for, like, the military, because it's, it's a lot of, like break them down to build them back up a lot of army references and yes sir and saluting and that kind of thing yeah yeah um which the army had a had a whole different vibe in the 90s we weren't in any wars at the time 20 years after we were in one war but that's that is exactly why tyler narrator whatever starts talking about this is he he's like we're a generation all right So he starts talking about it and he's like, we are a generation that was raised by women because our fathers abandoned us. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, what's the specific line that he says? Cause I was like, "Mm." Um, he describes it as what you see at Fight Club are men raised by women. And that is something that drives me bonkers because the concept is that you punish the parent who stayed. The dad is never punished. Nope. The, the mom is always punished because she's the one who stayed because she had to. Hello. Do you have, do you have input? Thank you. If you couldn't hear, Luna is yelling at Cody <laughs> because she is getting emotional and Luna wants to make sure she's okay. Luna's our cat, by the way. Oh, yes. She's made plenty of, plenty of cameos on this show in the past. Um, um, but yeah, um, punish the parent who stays. And that, that is bullshit. Because it's not that parent's fault that the other parent left. Exactly. And it's the whole goal of Project Mayhem is, I mean, yes, you have Tyler's goal and whatever, whatever. But that's coming from the narrator, because narrator and Tyler are the same person. Mm -hmm. But the whole concept of, like, there's a section after he stops seeing Tyler, when Tyler is starting to, like, fully take over him at night. Um... 
where he describes it as Tyler Tyler has dumped me and the specific mm-hmm. line is um my father left me and Tyler left me that's what he says in the movie I am Joe's broken heart because Tyler's dumped me because my father dumped me yeah and it's like okay so you need go to therapy my dude yeah even <laughs> even Marla tells him like you need professional help yeah and then he puts her on a bus with his cronies so they can kidnap her because he's an asshole Yes. He is Jack's prolapsed asshole. Um, uh, <laughs> um, another thing that, uh, another line that's, like, dismissive of women is when that, uh, the Jared Leto character shows up. Okay, so you do remember that Angel Face is played by Der- Jared Leto. Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, when Angel Face shows up, he, um, not the first time, he beats the crap out of him at Fight Club the first time, and then when he shows up as a recruit, um, he's the first recruit to show up. And um, it's the third in the movie, and he shows up before he gets the shit kicked out of him at Fight Club. He in the in the book, you have to graduate from Fight Club to join Project Mayhem. There's yeah, it's kind of unclear in the film. Um, but I I love his opening uh, scene where he first appears because um, Durden is giving a speech at Fight Club, and he's like. I can't remember the speech verbatim, but he's like, we grew up wanting to be astronauts and rock stars. And when he says rock stars, he looks at the front man of 30 Seconds to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the specific line when you first meet him is put him in a dress and make him smile and he'd be a woman. Oh, the man who won an Oscar playing a trans woman? <sighs> but, and that, that makes him violently angry. The, mm-hmm. the narrator. And that's when he absolutely just destroys him. And that's actually destroying Angel Face is the genesis for Project Mayhem because he realizes that he has to graduate from Fight Club because it's not hitting him the same anymore. It's th- not giving him what he wants. I think Project Mayhem begins... Yeah, Project Mayhem begins before he <laughs> destroys Angel Face. This is definitely a change. Um, it's after uh, they're working that banquet and they take... I. Couldn't tell if he was like a mayor or a politician or chief of police. I think it might be chief of police. And they grab him in a bathroom, tie a rubber band around his sack, and threaten to cut his balls off. Because he he's trying to invest- cut off Fight Club. If he continues to investigate Fight Club and Project Mayhem. And he's like, yeah, all right, I won't. And then after that, he sees Durden like high five in Angel Face, and he's like, Nah. And then the next Fight Club is when he ruins him. And Durden's like, What was that about? And he's like, I just wanted to destroy something beautiful. Yes, and that is what he says in the the book as well. Which is a killer line. So, another line that, like, really struck me was um, when he's talking about the, the goals and the ultimate, like, ideal of Project Mayhem, he describes it as, The goal was to teach each man in the project that he had the power to control history. We, each of us, can take control of the world. And I don't know why, but that just struck me as absolutely something that any of the characters in Assassins could have said. Ooh. But I feel like Fight Club and Assassins are like spiritual sequels in that it's... Because this is when guns get introduced as well. That line mm-hmm. happened... That Those lines happen after guns get introduced. For the record, when we say Assassins, uh, because this is kind of a deep pull and it's important to know what this is oh, yeah. for this conversation, <laughs> um, we're not referring to Assassin's Creed, the series of video games from Ubisoft. We are referring to a Stephen Sondheim musical called Assassins, which tells through song 
uh, the story of every attempted and successful presidential assassination in American history, um, narrated by usually an actor who ends up portraying um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes. Um, John Wilkes Booth is a main player in this musical. It is a, I almost said a killer musical. <laughs> Did not intend the pun. It, it's a fantastic musical, one of my favorite uh, pieces of theater in history. Um, that's what we are for referring to when we're discussing assassins. Yes, I, I should have specified that. <laughs> See, Bill and I both have degrees in theater because we spent our parents' money wisely. <laughs> no, it wasn't your parents' money. You're still paying that debt. Listen, I haven't paid it in four years. It's fine. Joseph, Joseph Biden, Joseph Robinette, Uncle give me Joe, my $10,000. Dark Brandon. <laughs> Dark Brandon, forgive all the student debt. Um, but yes, that this felt like a a spiritual kinship with that, except because there's just there's futility and desperation, um, mm-hmm. and also it gets real when you succeed in killing someone. Yeah, because that's also like is big is Big Bob the first one to die. Or do other people die first? In Project Mayhem? Yeah. He is the only to die in the film. So, I'm not sure what that means. So, Big Bob's death is what triggers, like, the split of... You got the, you've got the face turn of, uh, of narrator and the heel turn of Tyler. Um, because you've got... Uh, narrator realizes oh shit i'm getting real people hurt and it's always like around bob that he is upset like when bob shows up as a recruit he tries to legitimately turn him away and bob won't go and it's the complete opposite in the in the movie um the first time durden comes out when bob's on the porch and says you're too old you're too fat your boobs are too big bob packs up and starts to leave and jack is like no 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 stay yeah no he doesn't want bob anywhere near this he wants bob safe because i think even even as early as the fight clubs he when he finds out that bob is part of fight club he's like no you're not you're not supposed to be part of this because i feel like he sees in bob the last like his own like innocence Mm. and he doesn't want to watch that get destroyed it reads different in the movie because when he finds out that Bob's in Fight Club on Tuesdays and Thursdays instead of Saturdays, he's he's shocked. But it reads more as, "Oh, Tyler's doing more Fight Clubs without me." He is also shocked yeah. in the book by that. But that's all it reads. He is kind of happy for Bob, it seems, and like thankful that that he's getting a different kind of therapy because he knows the narrator knows that fight club's helping him with how he feels. And he sees that it's helping other people. And he starts to feel almost proud. Like, Oh, I'm doing something good. Yeah. Bob's getting the help too. He's the one guy I cared about at testicular cancer nights. Yeah. And, um, individual people don't stick out to the narrator in the book at all. Like, he refers to the individual cadets, etc. He calls them space monkeys. He doesn't learn any of their names. Mm-hmm. Even the ones that he does recognize, there's like one that he spends a significant amount of time with called the mechanic. Um, he's the mechanic. He doesn't know his name. Yeah. He knows Bob's name. I think there's only like three named characters in the movie. Four. Yeah. There's 
for he never names his boss. Nope. Who's like the only important side character? Um, who plays his boss, by the way? Oh God, I don't even know how to look it up because I don't know what his name is. <laughs> um, it, it it's a character actor. It's it's one of those guys that you'd probably recognize, but also like, who cares? Yeah. Um. Yeah. The only four named characters I can think of are Tyler Durden, Marla Singer, Robert Paulson, and Chloe. Yeah. Um. And which I hey, th- two female characters that have names. They don't talk to each other though. <laughs> no, they don't. Well, they talk to each other off screen. <laughs> I no, maybe they don't. No, I, don't, I think Chloe's dead. Yeah, Chloe dies by the end. Um, yeah. Nah. Sorry, Bechtel. <laughs> so. In the in the book, um, what I distinctly remember about the movie, and again, it's been like 15 years, is it is the Edward Norton character screaming his name was Robert Paulson, right? Yeah, when they bring in his corpse after he's shot in the back by police yep. for running a cab. Um, in the, uh, he's like, no, he's not just evidence, he's not this. He, he's a person, he has a name, his name was Robert Paulson. And then they're like, oh, I get it. In the book... He tries to stop Fight Club after Big Bob gets killed. Hmm. Um, he tries to stop Project Mayhem. Yeah. And they're like, um, how does he? How does he go about trying to stop it? Because he he does in the movie as well by turning himself into the police. He but he doesn't sh- make any real efforts to stop Fight Club. He's just trying to stop Tyler with what Tyler's doing. He shows up at Fight Club and is like, "Someone has died. This is not for fun anymore. Go home." And they ignore him, basically, and they keep reading the rules, and they straight up bodily throw him out of the event. Because he, at this point, Fight Club has moved beyond him. Project Mayhem has moved beyond him. He's created an ideology. Yeah, it's it's brought up in the movie. Tyler keeps reiterating, like, this isn't our thing. This is its own thing. It's its own living entity. He refers to the house as a living entity at one point. Yeah, it's a, it is a creature that I can't remember the exact quote, but it's one of those things where it's like you created a monster not thinking you could control it, but you didn't, you lost control of it. You don't, you're, this is a monster of your own creation and you don't know how to stop it. And it's, uh, that's also after he realizes he and Tyler are the same person or using the same body. And, um, it's like page 158 of the book, I think, when he, for the first person who tells him who he is, because everyone else has before has always just done the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like you don't talk about Fight Club, that's the first rule, because mm-hmm. they all think he's testing them. It's the dude in the neck brace at the, yes. at the bar in whatever city he's in. Yeah. Um, can we, can we divert a little bit and talk about uh, the homoeroticism of the mark for the Fight Club? And becoming part of Project Mayhem. Oh, the the cute little kiss on the hand. <laughs> Just a little smooch. <laughs> Just a little... Mm, pour some lye on it and burn. The way that this is described in the book, it feels like he's describing a blowjob. Because he describes the way that Tyler licks his lips, and they're shining and wet. Mm. And it is... I have read some smut in my day, and that is some smut language. Read some? You've written some smut in your day. Nope. Do you want me to edit that out? I will deny. (laughs) No, that's fine. But also, what is on on those websites is between me and God. (laughs) And the entire community of AO3. Um, Yeah, no, it's... 
they could have gone smuttier in the movie. They do show him lick his lips, but it's not like an extreme close-up. It's not like slowed down or sensual. He's just like, all right, here we go. It is. Okay, this is lie, poor, poor burn. It is pornographic in the book, and it goes on for like a good two pages. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, yeah, it, it, and it also like, it feels like a sex scene when it happens. Um, it, it actually spreads over two chapters because it the first chapter ends with the actual kiss and then the second chapter is like him trying to get away from the pain and Tyler's like, no, focus on the pain. Focus on it. Mm. Um, and it, it, it feels like an orgasm at the end. Does he try to go to his cave? His meditation cave? Uh, yes. So he does have a meditation cave. Does like he a ha- physical place or are you talking about No, a like a mental place? place. Yes. Does he have a spirit animal in his cave before Marla takes over the spirit animal? It's a penguin. Why is it a penguin? I, don't I can't figure that out. I wrote I think, it down. I was like, why is it a penguin? I think it's a penguin because it's icy. Because it's in the book, the guided meditation is one that Chloe takes them through. And it mm-hmm. is like through the chakras. And that chakra is like white and cold or something. So it's a penguin. Okay. That makes more sense than the movie when they're just like, go into a cave in the back of your mind and he's in the cave. It's like, find your spirit animal. And there's a penguin. And the penguin's like, slide. And it goes down a hill. And he's like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> and then the next time Marla's there and it's Marla and she's like, slide. And he's like, oh no, I'm aroused and angry and can't sleep. <laughs> or I might have just been the one aroused. God damn, she's hot. Um, I just saw a note I wrote. <laughs> There's a line in this movie. This is a complete and total tangent. There's a line in this movie. Fuck Martha Stewart. <laughs> which is extra funny because last night I watched Bride of Chucky from the year prior in which the line is spoken. Fuck Martha Stewart. <laughs> what did we have against Martha Stewart in the late 90s? Discuss. Well, wait, <laughs> isn't it Martha Stewart eat your heart out or is it just straight up fuck Martha no, Stewart? No, it's fuck Martha Stewart. In Chucky? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because <laughs> Chucky's like, what would Martha Stewart say? And Tiff is like, fuck Martha Stewart. And we're talking about a different movie now. That's not based on a book, so we won't continue. Um, so, I have a question. Yes. About... So, this is clearly mired in... Like, it, it's set in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Would cell phones change this story? Absolutely. Especially modern cell phones. I think, like, an early to mid-aughts cell phone, like, pre-smartphone cell phone, wouldn't change it much. You get three minutes after nine with yeah, your right. circle. Right. Um, but with modern cell phones, I don't think he would be completely unaware that he's Tyler Durden for that long. Because he'd have texts he doesn't remember sending he'd have call logs he doesn't remember making he would have to he would almost have to like willfully disengage like it would have you would have to make the choice as a character and as an author to be like this character does not use cell phones you know what it would what it would be would be he lands from his business trip finds his apartment has exploded um pulls out his phone instead of going to a payphone pulls out his phone Swipes mom, nah, not calling mom, not calling boss, not calling coworker. Marla, hover on Marla, call Marla, hang up right away. New number, Tyler Durden, call Tyler Durden. And then that first night when they're at the bar, they fight. His phone gets broken. No, Tyler would tell him to throw away your phone. Yeah. 
He would be like, you don't need that anymore. All of your other possessions are already gone. Let go completely. That would be the first step. Also, why did we hate Ikea so much in the 90s? (laughs) (laughs) There's a great shot. Um, in the first act where it pans over his apartment and the Ikea catalog descriptions of each piece of furniture in his apartment like appear in thin air next to him. It's such a beautiful piece of filmmaking. That is very, it's very similar in the book. He goes through and he's like, they come in 18 different finishes. Oh yeah. And his fridge is just full of condiments. Cause <laughs> yes, fridge with no food. Only condiments. Seven different kinds of capers. <laughs> I think you just see the, the exploded remains of the fridge with, like, a bottle of Heinz in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he specifies that he has a collection of mustards and capers. Of course he does. So, the book is mm-hmm. written, uh... It's first-person narration, right? Unreliable narrator? Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about how the movie managed to do that. And do it well. Mm-hmm. So, the whole thing... Obviously, we know the twist. Uh, it's a 25-year-old movie at this point. 30-year-old book, probably. Um, Tyler Durden and the narrator are one and the same. But since the narrator doesn't realize that until, you know, the third act of the story, we, the audience, don't realize that till the third act of the story. So there's a lot of little things that Fincher does with background and um, background characters or actors specifically and with the actual filmmaking process Um, first of all he uses voiceover narration which is pretty common like a lot of movies do that like I mean like Blade Runner does that and like notoriously everyone does that but he also does like fourth wall breaking narration at one point specifically when he's describing how uh, Tyler Durden would splice in single frames of pornography into children's films. Yes. And even in that scene, he reminds you you're watching a movie. He explains what a cigarette burn is Mm -hmm. in film parlance to our youngins out there. Pre-digital, and I hate that I have to do this now, but I know I have to do this now. Pre-digital, a film came on, you know, spools of film, and movies were long enough that you would need multiple reels to show a movie. I want to say a reel is... 10 to 20 minutes? He said it would take 5 to 6 for a whole movie. 5 to 6 reels. Yeah, okay. Um, So 20 minutes, I think, is where we're at. Um, And what would have to happen in projection booths is they would get the 6 reels of a movie and a projectionist would have to splice the reels together and put them on the projectors and there would be a little circular mark in the corner to tell the projector when to switch. And I remember as a child noticing those marks. And not knowing what they meant until I saw this movie for the first time. And then just flashing back to every time I'm like watching like the Flintstones movie when I'm six in a theater and no- recognizing the cigarette burns because the movie was boring me and not understanding that movies could be boring yet. Anywho, tangent. Um, that scene, uh, where was I going with this? The narrator is speaking directly to camera, directly to the audience. There's another scene a little bit later on where Tyler Durden is giving his all-singing, all-dancing, all crap-of-the-world speech. He's doing that directly to camera. And as he does that, Fincher does, like, a film-shaking effect. It looks like, if you are familiar with watching movies in theaters pre-digital, it looks like the film is coming off the reel when he does that. It's an amazing effect that loses a lot in the digital age, because, obviously, oh... 
the theater's not actually having problems. This is part of the movie. Um, he does a lot of things like that to remind you you're watching a movie, which reminds you as the audience that it's being narrated by this character. And this character may not be telling the truth. And it's very elegantly done. There's little bits. Um, the popular one is uh, there's two or three instances in the first act before we meet Tyler Durden for real where he appears in one frame in the middle of a scene. Um, it happens uh, when he's at his office the first time, and it happens when Marla is leaving after one of the... I think it's after he confronts her the first time at a uh, meeting. Marla's walking away, and Durden just appears for one frame. And it's just like a fascinating use of the medium to enhance the story that's being told by uh, Polinick in the, in the novel. And I think it's so fucking well done. I had another one. Oh, um, we mentioned earlier, the opening is them getting ready to watch the buildings go down. As, and then it flashes back. When they get to the end, they go back through that scene a second time. And um, he's got the gun in his mouth, the narrator. And Durden's like... What do you have to say? And oh, he pulls the gun out. And he says, I still can't think of anything. To which Durden replies, flashback humor. It's such a wonderful fourth wall breaking moment. <laughs> and it's just using... Using film as we know it and just kind of twisting the way things are done slightly. Just to give you that bit of unease. Also, he does splice uh, a few frames of a penis in right before the credits. Of course he does. Right when Orange Cassidy's coming out because his theme music is playing. <laughs> why are you like this? You know why I'm like this. <laughs> so, should we talk about the ending? Because they are different. We should talk about the ending. Um, most of our listenership, I feel, will be aware of the ending of the movie. Um... Project Mayhem, except for the building that they're in, uh, in which the narrator foils that one. I think there's 10 or 11 other bombs set up around the city, and they blow up all these credit card companies to erase debt and create chaos and make a very happy young me. Um, Debt-free, baby! Uh, Marla is there after being kidnapped by the goons. Um, the narrator has shot himself in the face which causes uh, the visual representation of Tyler Durden's head to explode. It's basically shot in the head. Um, killing off Tyler Durden. Um, the narrator and Marla hold hands and he says, you've met me at a very interesting time in my life. And then where is my mind by the Pixies plays? Penis appears, roll credits. How does the book end? So the book, uh, there's no additional Project Mayhem stuff. It's just the building that they're in. And one of the running things is that he, when he talks about building bombs and he talks about making gelatin explosives, every time he talks about it, he's like, paraffin has never worked for me. And he says it three or four times throughout the course of the book. And finally... You're in the thing, and the time... You're in the building with them at the end, and the time hits. And the building doesn't go. And the narrator says, Tyler, you used paraffin, didn't you? 
because he doesn't know how to do it correctly, so neither does Tyler. Oh, so nothing goes down in the book. Nothing goes down in the book. And um, the people that come to save him are Marla. She doesn't get kidnapped. Um, She does get roughed up off screen, (laughs) off page, (laughs) by the guys because she's screaming at him, like, you're a monster, I hate you, like, never, if you ever touch me again, you're dead, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And she's got a black eye. Um, But she shows up with uh, the other people from the support groups. Oh. And they all show up on this 15th floor of this building, and they're like... Don't do it. Don't do it. Because they just see a dude with a gun in his mouth. They don't know what that means. He does pull the trigger. But the last chapter of the book is him. It's not clear whether he's in a hospital bed or whether he's dead. Uh, He thinks he's dead and he's in uh, heaven. Um, Because he keeps talking about how if he were throughout the book, Marla talks about how she keeps getting calls from dead people because she used to work at a, um, a crematorium. Mm-hmm. And a funeral home. Um, and so she knew a lot of dead and dying people. And they kept, whenever they would call her, uh, they wouldn't, the, the line would be dead. It would ring once. She would pick up and it would be dead. And she knew it was a dead person calling her. Um, so he talks about how if he got a phone, if he got a phone, he would call her and he wouldn't hang up. He would tell her all about it. Um, but we know how unreliable the narrator is. So he is, we're left to assume he's laying in a hospital bed in some sort of medically induced coma, recovering from shooting himself in the face. Um, And the book ends with him talking about how all these orderlies and nurses and janitors keep coming up to him and they're like, get better, Mr. Durden. We can't wait to see you again. We can't wait to have you back, Mr. Durden. And it ends with Tyler not actually being dead because no one knows that he's not Tyler. Um, Mm. And there is actually a sequel. The fuck? There is a sequel. It is a comic. Also written by the same author. Did you read it? I did not read it. Oh, damn. Uh, I watched two movies last episode. (laughs) And and you can't read one fucking comic. Uh, it's six comics, actually. I believe. Oh, like that would take you, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> so the premise of the uh, Fight Club comic is that Marla and the narrator are now married and it's in the future. And the therapist, he goes to a therapist once a week and it turns out that his therapist is part of Project Mayhem and is hypnotizing him to bring back Tyler for an hour a week. Oh. And Marla's also uh, messing with his medication because she wants Tyler back. Oh, no. I don't know if I like that. Yeah. But I'd have to read it to really judge it. The author actually liked the movie. <laughs> You're just calling better. him the yep, author now? Sure am. Not even a tripolinic? Nope. <laughs> Chuck. Chuck is his name. Charlie. Um, but yes he actually preferred the movie he thought the movie ending was more hopeful yeah I remember reading that back in the day Um, which is one of those like few movie adaptations where the author actually preferred the movie yeah like that doesn't happen very often just ask Stephen King how he feels about The Shining like one of the best and yet Dr. Sleep (laughs) 
Doctor Sleep the movie is also really good. I know, but it's essentially <laughs> a sequel to Kubrick Shining and not. But he, I, I, let's talk about that when we get to that. <laughs> oh God, I'm gonna have to read so much Stephen King. We'll do like a Stephen King month sometime, just for you. It's gonna take me a month to get through Doctor Sleep. Uh, like a two and a half hour movie. It's gonna take ages. Um, is there anything else you uh, you wanted to get into? Um, I had a few little notes that I didn't get to. No, we talked about the ending. Yeah. Um, I wrote down uh, when he first meets Marla. Uh, Marla is literally just wandering through traffic at times. <laughs> and I was like, are they trying to get me to think that she's also a figment of her imagination there? There is a there is a thing in the book, a red herring early, that he thinks Tyler and Marla might be the same person because he never sees them in the same room. Ooh. I, you know what would have been a good sequel? Is that he finds out that Marla is also part of his personality. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't quite work with the movie, considering she's kidnapped off screen. Um, but I can't think of anyone she interacts with that isn't the narrator or Tyler. Yeah, she never interacts with Tyler in the book at all. Yeah. Like, it's straight like, up described as Tyler will be standing next to the narrator, Marla appears, and Tyler's gone. You know what she says that they, like, roughed her up when she goes to visit the house and he's not there? But we don't see it as the audience of the movie. We Like, we, we see out the corner of his eyes her getting grabbed on the bus and then brought in. But it could all still be part of his imagination. You know, that's my new headcanon. Marla's part of his imagination, too. <laughs> She does show up at the house and is yelling at the recruits, and the recruits are like, you can't join. Because it's, it's also, like, implied that women are allowed to join Fight Club and allowed to be recruits, um, but you never see it. Yeah, it's not even implied in the movie. It's just a men's thing. It's a very men's thing. Fight Club is an MLM. Um, <laughs> speaking of Marla, when she first calls him... At the house, um, basically the night she and Tyler start fucking. Uh, four times, by the way. There are four condoms in the toilet when he gets up the next morning. There's only one in the toilet in the book, but they have sex multiple times. Oh, four, four condoms. Um, when he's on the phone with her and she explains that she's taken too many Xanax and has her suicide attempt. In the background, Tyler Durden is just practicing nunchucks. <laughs> <laughs> it is, no joke, one of the funniest things. <laughs> fucking hysterical and then of course during that night she says one of the best lines um i need to look up the trivia to see the line that was cut uh but the line from the movie is i haven't been fucked like that since grade school yep i remember that line and i need to look up what was because if i recall the story she said a different line i think she improvised it and oh no 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 it was a different line and then uh fox pictures said no and they changed it to i haven't been fucked like that since grade school which was worse than the original line and uh as for the original line to get put back in and fincher was like nope this is it now the original line was i want to have your abortion that's the line that's in the book okay <laughs> <laughs> both of them darkly incredible lines <laughs> Um, um, so, you know how I've been disrespectfully comparing this to other things all night? <laughs> I mean, like, Assassins <laughs> is respectful, 
Uh, you know what this reminds? Like having read it, it reminds me of the episode of Futurama with the robot uprising. <laughs> <laughs> the one where um the Mother's Day. Yes. Because specifically because go on, go on. please please explain. <laughs> so specifically because there's a line about how you're not allowed to drink in Project Mayhem, and that just made me think of the little card on Bender's shoulder going pure oil, pure natural oil for all, and Bender just rips the card in half. <laughs> okay, okay, I get you. Um, also, the rules for Project Mayhem. The first rule of Project Mayhem is you don't ask questions. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, that sounds like authoritarianism. Oh, sounds yeah. like you've replaced one leader with another. And you know what? That brings me to the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, it's something I wrote down. And it's something that's been like kind of on my mind and kind of in the zeitgeist for the last while. And it's, it's because there was a point in my life. I am a uh, cis, straight-passing white male. From a middle class family. I know the worst thing to be in America. I understand that I was born on second base and for a lot of my life thought I'd hit a double, uh, to use the uh, turn of phrase. Um, I only say second and not third because I'm middle class, not wealthy. Um, but there was definitely a time in my life, and it was around the time of my life when I saw this movie for the first time, where I definitely could have gone down 4chan rabbit holes. I could have gone down in cell communities. I could have been, quote, red-pilled, which I, I, I love that they took red-pilled from the trans authors. Why, <laughs> why is it that you misunderstand, not you specifically, yeah. general you, why is it that you misunderstand so hard the idea of a satire written by a gay man and an explicit story about coming out as trans by two trans women? Why are these your two touchstones culturally because cool guys in leather jackets cody nothing beats a cool guy in a leather jacket except another cool guy when you're when you're in the closet and you want to fuck the cool guy in the leather jacket but your parents would kick you out of the house for wanting to fuck the cool guy in the leather jacket you turn that in your own brain into wanting to be the cool guy in the leather jacket and what he says goes so what i wrote down while i was watching this movie was a warning Beware of men who tell you who you are and who you should be. Men like Andrew Tate, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, and all those other chuckle fucks. While they may be right about what's wrong, they're wrong about what's right. And that's, I think, what's so dangerous about movies like this being misread and movies like The Matrix being misread by these MRA communities, these incel communities and shit like that, is they make some really fucking good points. Working in a corporate world, as somebody who works a 9 to 5 in an office, I sit at a fucking desk all day, it gets boring as shit. And there is a part of me that would love to get together with the guys and just punch each other for a couple of hours. We had But so it's not healthy. Fun. We had so much fun when we did a rage room. It was it was a blast. But it was also in a controlled environment and it was done in a healthy way. And we have to do these things in a healthy way. Like, there there is a longing for community amongst young men in this day and age. And I'm so grateful that I found that community in the theater program at Albright when I did. When I was around so many women I respected, so many uh, queer people I respected, 
that it changed my views on a lot of that from my overly evangelical upbringing that taught me that women were lesser than, because that is... 40% of the Bible is how women are less than men? Yeah, we don't talk about that enough. Um, because we highlight that one verse that was mistranslated in the 50s says, don't be gay. It doesn't even say that. Um, but we've turned it into a crusade against the LGBTQIA plus community. Did I get all those letters right in the right order? Uh, yes. Cool. I did not think I would do that. I've had a an alcoholic monster, so <laughs> here we go. Um <clears throat> Where was I going with this? Um, but no, I'm grateful that I found that community when I did. And I'm grateful that after I moved to L.A., I had a wonderful um, acting class with a bunch of really cool queer folk and women, in addition to a few straight men. Um, but also, like, college, moving to L.A. was the first time in my life I was exposed to people from different cultures, and learning, like getting to know people from different cultures and learning to respect that it's not wrong, it's just different, and that's fine. It doesn't change me. It's just respecting people for who they are. Um, and even now, like, I'm no longer in those acting classes, but now I have this really cool community that I'm a part of that we rally around the Manchester City Football Club. And every weekend I'm at a pub with 20 to 30 people and I get to know them and we're all from different backgrounds from different parts of the country in some cases from different parts of the world but we have one thing in common not everything's in common but we care about each other because we're human and who cares about like the other stuff we've got this one thing and we can get around the other stuff we don't all have to be exactly the same we don't have to be cookie cutters we can you know get along with people who aren't us and that's a bit of a tangent, a bit of a tirade. But I feel yes. like it needed to be said. Because a, a lot of people that are huge fans of this movie... There's the, the common meme of if someone says Fight Club is their favorite movie, that's a red flag. And it's understandable because... Oh no, is this person going to set off a bomb at a credit card company? It's not to say that's not a brilliant movie. Because I think it is a brilliant movie. I think it's a brilliant book. And I want to say you agree yes i think the misunderstanding of this book and this movie is an indictment on the american rugged individualism and the america is the greatest country in the world and the lack of third places and third spaces that america has because a lot of these a lot of the point of the book is that these kids, these people that are involved in Fight Club, are ground down by the cogs of capitalism and ground down by the fact that they don't have any community. Yeah. And so they find it and they are going to defend it fiercely and it gives them what it gives them a purpose and makes them feel useful and wanted. And we don't have that. And there are too many people in this country, especially, that take advantage of that. And they start to build communities. And I just want to say this. If you are like I was 10 years ago, if you're a young man, and you don't have that sense of community, and you think you found it, look around. If everyone in the community looks like you, is from similar background to you, that's, ask yourself why. why. Why is everyone here a white man? 
Why is everyone here straight? Why, why is there one guy who's in charge who claims to know me better than I know me? That's, that's where the danger comes from. And I think that's, that's where it is. Because like, part of the cult, so to speak, that forms in this story, Project Mayhem, The Fight Club, is around this glorious praise of Tyler Durden. And he's a savior, and he's figured us out, and he's got the answers. You're a fucking legend, man. Yeah, and that's that's where the problem is. There's nothing wrong with getting together with your buddies. But when there's one guy who claims to know you better than you, and knows the way to fix you, that's where the problem is. That's where the grift is. And that's what we need to be wary of. That's what our young men today need to be wary of, because there's too many grifters out there. And American capitalism makes it too easy to grift these days it's too easy to publish a book and sell it that claims to have the answers it's too easy to have have a paid subscription service to tell you how to be a better man it's it's too easy to fall into that too yeah and like i think that's a major warning of the book that just isn't clear enough to the kind of people who saw this movie in 99 when they were in college to people that are finding it now it's, I feel like it's the same people that misinterpret Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because the satire is so... Like, in the book, at least, the satire is so juicy, and you can lose sight of it through the cool moments. Yeah. It's... They shouldn't have cast Brad Pitt, man. <laughs> shouldn't have cast... He's, he's too cool. He's just too cool. <laughs> but we got a little real there for a minute. Smidge. Just a little bit. I think we had to. It's Fight Club. We, we have to kind of go you know, there. the first rule of Fight Club. The last rule of Fight Club, let's <laughs> stop talking about Fight Club. <laughs> Cody, before we started recording, you had an idea. I did. Our, our next book All right, this is movie. I don't know what this is yet. I've actually mentioned it during the podcast. Oh. Oh, shit. Okay. I mentioned it very early. Uh, oh no! It's it's what it's the story that he updated into Fight Club. You are going to get to enjoy your favorite director. I believe it's Baz Luhrmann. It may not be. Oh fuck off! <laughs> God damn it! No. You're gonna get to enjoy the vehicle for Leo Shitty DiCaprio. Fuck! Really? The Great Gatsby. Oh. At least I don't have to read it again. I don't want to feel like I'm in the ninth grade. I have actually never read it. What? Well, <laughs> don't tell my ninth grade English teacher, but neither have I. <laughs> ninth grade? 11th? 12th? High school was a blur. I managed to avoid reading it. Uh, I managed to fake my, fake it till I made it through and that glass. <laughs> now I am going to assign homework to myself as an adult because that's what we do for fun. I guess we're doing Great Gatsby in two weeks. Yup. Until then, uh, where can people find you if they would uh, so choose? If you would like to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Pretty Special, P-R-I-T-T-Y-S-P-E-S-H-Y-L. And William, where can they find you? You can find me at uh, Mr. Billy Beck, that's M-R Billy Beck on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Letterboxd. And you can find the podcast. Why did you bring up your Letterboxd? Why did I bring up? Because we do a movie podcast. All right, and maybe fine. people want to follow me on the movie social media fine, for the movie podcast, Cody. You know what? You can find me on Goodreads. <laughs> yes, plug the Goodreads. Oh my god, I can't even find my 
I don't even know what. While you're looking for it, you can find the show on Twitter at soon major pod. Um, I'm going to be doing a better job. I so my computer, my old computer, I can say that now. Um, compressed the shit out of the audio on the last episode, and I was just really downhearted by it and mad at myself for not catching it because I thought the episode itself was really solid. Um, so I didn't really do a lot of promoting because I was kind of embarrassed by the sound quality of the last episode. But I promise uh, in the coming weeks I will be doing more on that account uh, promoting this episode uh, now that I have the cool new computer. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, what's your Goodreads account, Cody? My Goodreads is my, my full name, Cody, C-O-D-I-E, Beck, B-E-C-K. And you are not allowed to judge me for having the Dungeon Master's Guide on there for over a year. I'm working through it, okay? <laughs> no one was going to judge you for your nerd shit. You have a podcast. Oh, God, I'm no better than a man. <laughs> We're going out on that. <laughs>